So it's really good to be with you all this evening. Thank you so much for coming and for having me. Um, so just by way of introduction, I'm a social worker. And for the past six years, I've studied the role of social media and gun violence, a topic area that I was led to actually by Chicago youth. I have no tech background, nor am I formally trained in data science or computer science, but rather the problem of gun violence moving to online spaces drew me to the digital world. I also saw an opportunity to leverage my qualitative training to dig deeper into narratives left on social media and to consider the extent to which these stories offered or presented a new understanding and an approach to studying gun violence. However, what I didn't expect during the research process was a deep and crippling inability to understand the complex, nuanced, and culturally rich ways in which youth express themselves on social media, in particular Twitter, and how that would affect any future efforts that would seek to analyze thousands or millions of social media posts from diverse populations. So today I'm presenting a new paper that we just uh, that just came out a few weeks ago um, that is an interdisciplinary collaboration between social work scientists and computer scientists. And the approach that we developed is called the contextual analysis of social media. This paper um, is about the promise of leveraging context with NLP and the challenges with how we think about accuracy in this space as well. So in my talk today, I want to cover why I think context matters when leveraging NLP for the study of human behavior and social problems. I want to bring you along the journey, my research journey, and some of the mistakes that we've made along the way. Um, I'll then talk about how we developed the chasm approach and highlight some of its features. And then I'll discuss a paper in which we apply chasm method to an NLP analysis of loss and aggression on Twitter among gang-involved youth in the city of Chicago. Um, I then want to engage in discussion in whether or not a contextual approach that aims to improve accuracy is actually a good thing. And I'll end with takeaways um, from this paper. So automatic social media content analysis utilizing NLP processing tools has generated discussions as some researchers, communities, and policymakers debate the extent to which NLP can detect cultural influence and nuance in language, or correctly decipher the goals and motivations of online speech. So let's apply this to a school context. Several tech companies are capitalizing on fears surrounding impending violence, leading to a growing market for student surveillance measures as various districts and school leaders commit themselves to preventing acts of violence. So, Record Systems, for instance, recently announced the launch of On Guard, a program that claims to advance student safety by implementing countless surveillance and threat assessment mechanisms in and around schools. The OnGuard package offers three main features to school districts. One is vehicle recognition software with tracking radar and full range cameras in school buses and school bus stop signs, which meet it with with the goal of monitoring the activity of students as well as the surveilling area of pedestrians and vehicles. The other automatic license plate, the other um, tools also include an automatic license plate, plate, plate reader with, move it, with movement detection capabilities around the school grounds as well as 24-7 social media monitoring. 
So with these technologies, record can place vehicles or people on watch lists. And depending on local laws, it can automatically send sensitive information such as license plate numbers or footage of vehicles and people to school administrators or even law enforcement. The video software also claims to be able to detect and notify school authorities about suspicious movement patterns, though there is little data that supports that this can actually help. Next, issues around context may also extend to hate speech policies at tech and social media companies. So many LGBTQ people posts have been blocked recently using words like dyke or fag or tranny to describe ourselves and our communities. Whether intentional or not, these moderation fails constitute a form of censorship. And just like Facebook's dangerous and discriminatory name policy, these examples demonstrate how the company's own practices often amplify harassment and cause real harm to marginalized people, especially when used as a form of bullying to silence other users from their identities or political activities. While these words are still too often shouted as slurs, they're often frequently reclaimed by the queer and transgender community as people as a means of self-expression. And then lastly, researchers at the University of Washington have conducted a study titled The Risk of Racial Bias in Hate Speech Detection. The researchers decided to focus on Twitter because it is a particularly important space for black activism. However, the study found that tweets by black people were 1.5 times more likely to be flagged as offensive. And if the tweet was written in African-American English, the tweet was 2.2 more times more likely to be flagged as offensive. Part of the issue is that algorithms aren't taught to read for social context. If black people online use the word, use the N-word, then an algorithm is going to market as hate speech even if the context would say that it's not. So social media data poses specific challenges related to understanding context and data labeling for algorithmic system development. Due to a wide variety of social media platform specific digital lexicons and syntax and semantics, this is further complicated by truncated and phonetically spelled text and emojis and hashtags. And so this brings me to my own research. For the past six years, I've studied the Twitter communication of Ja'Kyra Barnes. So it's 2014, and for the past, before then, two years prior, I had just been introduced to Twitter as a space where gang activity could potentially happen. I had been following two local rappers in the city of Chicago and watching and observing taunts and back and forth that led to one of their murders and the other one's arrest. Fast forward, I'm sitting in my office at the University of Michigan, and I'm looking for that next big research project. And I'm scrolling local newspapers and various media articles, and I see this title, Chicago's Gun-Toting Gang Girl, Little Snoop. And what caught my attention is that I had watched The Wire back in 2008, and I was a big fan of the Little Snoop character from that uh, HBO television show. So I wanted to learn more. When I dug into the article, there was a lot of unique um, context that I was surprised by. First, 
uh, Ja'Kyra was known as a shooter or hitter in her gang and was south, from the south side of Chicago, which meant that she had a high positionality and that she was trusted and viewed as being one of the toughest people in her gang. However, this, this particular positionality was quite unique for young girls. It's not uncommon for young girls to be a part of gangs, but to have this type of positionality was particularly unique. In addition, she had this mythology on Twitter. Uh, by the time she was 17, the digital streets were saying that she had allegedly shot or killed up to 17 people. But she had never been arrested. So that was also unique. And then, at 17, she had over 27,000 tweets and 5,000 followers, which at that particular time placed her around the 95th percentile of Twitter users. And so what made this particular story different is that there was this new world in which conversations and arguments were taking place that were shaking up how youth violence was happening and the outreach efforts that local citizens were trying to engage in. They were unaware of the type of communication that was, un that was unfolding on social media and had zero idea of what to do with it. So I want to show you a quick clip of um, uh, a and &E story about Ja'Kyra that gives you more context. If I can't show you the video, which is a high possibility, you can at least hear the audio. Chicago in 
kill somebody, your status rockets. That fearsome status was amplified by Jakira's outside presence on social media. Jakira was known allegedly as a shooter or a killer in her gang, and she also had quite the Twitter following. She had 27,000 tweets and 5,000 followers, which put her in like the 90th percentile of Twitter users at that time. Jakira was a social media star. Jakira was on social media bragging about what she knew that she had done. She was proud, and she let everybody know. She was very quick to let you know that she was viral and that she was not afraid to shoot somebody. Why was Shakira so notorious? I think because of her gender. Because she's a girl. She was a real bad gangster girl. Every bit the definition. I think that for females, that if you want to keep that kind of respect, she was never going to stop. It's more of a survival to be a female in this world, and you want to be better than the guys. You're the gangster. You're the real gangster. Here, Chicago gangs have become skilled at using social media to taunt and threaten their rivals. A phenomenon Professor Patton calls cyberbanging. One of the things I was surprised about is many of these gang members will friend their enemies. I mean, their rival gang members. What is I will make sure that you all get a. Let me see if I can pull this back up. Okay. I'll make sure that you all get the uh, actual clip in the email very soon. So. Early on, in our attempt to analyze Jakira's tweets qualitatively, um, there's a lot happening. First, as you might imagine, there was only one narrative about this young girl, that she was a bloodthirsty killer, shooter any minute, she was tough, she was hard. One note, one dimension about who she was. And that's the narrative that we imbibed in our early research. And we went looking for ideas of violence and aggression. And so we found them. But a part of the challenge in those early days was also our deep inability to even understand what was being communicated online. And that was a really challenging part of the work because if we wanted to leverage Jakira as a case study and be able to apply that to a larger corpus of data to see if there are larger patterns that we might be able to see, if we have no understanding of, of any way of making meaning of the language, of the images, of the emojis, of the hashtags, then any tool that we could use would, would never really work. And so this is an example of a post that we would see regularly. It was a very normative post. Um, but there are several important things that we needed to understand before doing any type of coding or labeling of this post. So for example, what does boss mean in this context? What does taking an L signify given this particular context? Who was little B? What happened to him and why is he significant here? Boss is used again, but seemingly related to a proper noun. So what does it mean in this particular context? 
Trell, STL, EBT. Again, things that we had no understanding of. And what are the emojis telling us? When we dug deeper and when we partnered with young people from Chicago to better understand how to make meaning of these posts, we realized that this post was really about loss and that there was a friend of Jakaira that was connected to her gang that had been shot recently and that she was leveraging this moment, this time on Twitter to memorialize his death. And how we know that they're connected to her gang is that she mentions ST, STLEBT, which is St. Louis and Eberhardt, which are two streets on the south side of Chicago, Woodlawn and the Inglewood neighborhoods, um, which are invisible gang boundaries. So we quickly realized that in order to do this halfway well, we needed a process that would help us to center and privilege the importance of context in this space. And so we developed CASM, which is a methodological process for labeling social media data grounded in contextually driven and domain-specific decisions leading to the training of an algorithmic system. We wanted to be able to leverage natural language process and to look at large amounts of data in this space. It bridges an identified gap between inadequacies in current NLP tools and differences in geographic, cultural, and age-related variants in social media use and communication. CASM utilizes a team-based approach to annotate and qualitatively analyze social media data explicitly grounded by community expertise and understanding. This process yields rich qualitative analysis as well as in-depth annotations that easily feed into NLP systems to improve accuracy. And so we then apply this to a corpus that we developed that starts with Jakaira. And so our data set consists of almost 6,000 tweets by Jakaira Barnes and her top communicators. The initial data set included many users who were inactive and users not relevant to the communities and context we study, including celebrities from Chicago. So we used a snowballing sampling to find 214 additional Twitter, Twitter users in Chicago with social media connections to and engagement with Jakaira Barnes and her top communicators. We have adapted the traditional snowballing approach for social media data by looking for clues and references from one social media user to find another social media user in the network who may be displaying similar behaviors or gang affiliations as the first user. In total, our data set includes 279 users. However, it's helpful to consider a wide variety of domain expertise as community members, including young people, social linguists, ethnographers, and other people with specialized knowledge of various aspects of social media corpus may have useful and vastly different knowledge to offer. Social media text is particularly challenging to decode as aspects of performativity and satire and jokes and the like are difficult to identify, define, understand across contexts. As such, it's important to keep track of domain expert insights and how they're represented within each social media post, as these insights will be used for identifying and training annotators in their future data analysis. So in our project, we consulted with domain um, experts. These are young people from the city of Chicago that were frequenting violence prevention organizations. And so we hired these young people um, to uh, help us translate and interpret context, um, to make meaning of posts, but to also give us insight as to whether or not we should be doing this work in the first place. And so oftentimes they would um, 
let us know if they felt uncomfortable with how we were approaching the project or different ways in which we might be making many of the posts. They were our validation check in our coding and annotation of Jakira's corpus. And so this is the chasm method. Uh, it has five-step process. Uh, and I'm going to walk you through that five-step process. But all of this is housed in an annotation system that we created called um, VATOS, which is the visual, um, visual and textual analysis of social media tool that we created. And the goal was to have a naturalistic environment where our annotators could then code and label social media posts in a way that res will resemble being on social media. And so we partnered with computer scientists to create this web-based annotation system that we could then use. So let me walk you through our annotation process in the VATOS system. So an annotator, this would normally be a master of social work student or an undergraduate student at Columbia, would be given a random tweet from the corpus. And they would first be asked to make sense of a particular post without any context whatsoever. So in this particular example, the annotator was given a post that says, I've been up for like three days straight. And the annotator responds, well, he hasn't slept in days. Well, it's not really useful or helpful at all. Then uh, we ask the annotator to then go through a set of procedures to look for context. We ask them to look through the social media posts that may be surrounding this particular comment. We give them um, web-based resources like Hip Hop Wiki to look through. We ask them to go back to the original post author, look at the peer network. This is really important. A user may claim gang affiliation, but will be following Disney characters, so there would be a disconnect there. Um, we look at the offline events that, events that shape language and shape how young people are speaking online. We look at the virality of the post, the post and who was engaging with that post as well. So after the annotator then goes through those seven steps to look for context, they have a lot more to say. Now the annotator says, well, this user is saying that he hasn't been up for three days straight, most likely meaning he hasn't slept. This post comes days after his friend was killed. This user may be having difficulty sleeping because of his friend's death. He includes a persevering emoji and a flush face emoji. And so now we have a, a better understanding that there may be some sleep deprivation involved that is related to grief and loss, things that we may not have ascertained without digging for more context in this place. And then the final act is for the annotator to provide a label. Um, some of the challenges with being a social worker who is partnering uh, with data scientists is this need to put things in very finite and neat boxes that don't always represent the complexity of the human experience. But we, in order to move forward, this is what we did. And so the two labels that we focused on were grief and aggression. And then everything else that is equally as important was identified as being other. Uh, but before we handed off this labeled data set to the, our data science colleagues, um, we then um, uh, did two things. We went back to those domain experts, those young people that you saw a few minutes ago, and we asked them to validate our annotations. And so if we label something as aggression, do they agree that it should be labeled as aggression? And then we studied our disagreement as well. And so oftentimes there would be a disagreement between the MSW student, who would more than likely be a young white woman at Columbia, versus a young African-American uh, boy or girl. Um, and we would study why they were disagreeing 
green. So things like community level, place, context, and backstories that the young people brought to the table were really important. Um, things like people and um, uh, hand gestures will also come up as well. And so what we didn't expect was that unearthing context, privileging and centering context, actually helped us to see a different Jakaira. So we went into this with a very myopic view of who this young person is. But focusing on context allows us to see that she is a complex individual filled with love and hope and pain and trauma, and that the complexity of her life was equally as important to understanding the story and applying it to any type of research process. And so being able to focus on, um, on her story and the complexity of her story showed us that she was actually leveraging social media oftentimes to process grief and trauma, and that over time, posts would become more traumatic and more aggressive. But that's not where we started. And so we wanted to make sure that we show the complexity of this, of this, of this, young, of this young woman. Yeah. Right, so we have definitely studied her images as well. Um, and we have a, a computer vision paper on that as well that I can um, talk about too. Um, so now we're ready to um, partner with our data science colleagues. And so we designed um, a set of experiments to evaluate if a training of an NLP classifier on the Twitter data labeled using the chasm, using chasm performance better than training on the same data without a contextual approach. And so our experiment utilizes a linear kernel support vector machine classifier originally described in a prior paper that we've developed. And we use, we've used this particular approach as a strong baseline for this project. And so to examine how well CASM helps in automatic classification, we train the support vector machine on two separate training sets. One label with the qualitative labels only and one label with distant labels that are automatically inferred on the presence or absence of hand-picked indicator words. So the latter method should provide a strong baseline for the performance of distant labeling while not context-specific. It still incorporates the domain expertise from the annotations. So what we found is that with, um, without the context-specific annotations, the um, experiment performed at around 52%, uh, meaning that we were able to automatically identify aggression and loss correctly about 52% of the time. But when we leveraged the context from annotators, it performed much better at around 64 um, with, with an F measure of around 64. Um, and so we were initially excited that having context uh, would be a particular, would be a strong strategy for being able to have better accuracy in this space. Yeah, of course. For the distant labels, are dictionary-based approach? Like yes. At the end, they are just clicking the box. But the hope is that they have now thought about different ways and different and have different contextual factors that inform which box they now click. Yep. Yeah. Um, this, but, but the, the, the labeling doesn't import, like, like the, the machine learning labeling doesn't incorporate any of that, that sort of wider qualitative text in their generation. Not, yeah. So the, the, 
the machine learning, what it incorporates is the thought process that went into the decision making around checking the box. Yeah, did you ever, it seems like an intermediate step would be, you have a, dic you, you have a, dictionary, you have a dictionary approach, you have this kind of like guided labeling process. You could also imagine an unguided labeling process. You can imagine a process which is just like humans telling them to read a bunch of things about it and then, and then click either aggression or loss. Yeah, no, we've, we've thought a lot about that. Um, and we have initially tried to work with Mechanical Turks to do this very task. And it would all, like, no one would ever understand what was being said. It would just be, a, it was always a fruitless task because the complexity of the language was so complex that it wasn't telling us much of anything. Um, and so we. we that sounds like doing the like yeah. Well, I, I, I still think I would love to do something comparative because this is what I think content moderators are already doing. They're already making tons of mil millions of decisions every day about what things should be taken down. And so I would love to figure out a way of being able to work with content moderators to, to see to what extent um, their process is informed by any contextual factors or if it's just a random immediate reaction to what they're seeing. Um, so yeah, I, I would actually love to see that happen. And it's already happening. So, um, so yeah, the the implementation of Chasm approach requires iterative and ongoing foundational considerations regarding the ethics of interpretation, analysis, and sharing of social media data. So, our ethics discussion attempts to wrestle with the real life tensions inherent in using AI to study human behavior, grounded in violence prevention efforts. So, our work sits between two critical issues: one, black families wanting their children to be safe and desiring tools that help achieve these ends. And on the other end is digital surveillance and policing enacting and enhancing yet another form of state violence on black people and black communities. And so we struggle with whether or not being able to have more context just means that now you're better able to surveil black and brown young people. And so we spent a lot of time thinking in this paper, thinking and pushing and pulling on the extent to which this is actually a useful tool or if it's just a tool that actually helps us to be more harmful. And I would love to get people's reactions because this is something that we're still thinking through. I don't have clear answers on, but it's something that it is probably the thing that keeps me up at night when doing this work. Um, and so a few things that I really want to hit is that, you know, should accuracy be the goal when we are trying to, to support young black and brown youth uh, with, um, with violence prevention? Um, consequences of applying AI to, social, to, to, to complex um, social problems are very real. Um, our strategy for ethical protection is to involve domain experts, young people that are from the community, to leverage this contextual approach and to have very clear user protections and ethical annotation agreement that we set out to develop as well. And so some of the takeaways, um, I think, from this project are it's very clear that context matters of being able to decipher um, language and images. Um, we have done the exact same process with a set of images um, as well. And I, and I can definitely share that paper with you all as well. Um, 
what, what it helped us to do is to be able to determine how we're making meaning of um, images with guns and how images with guns will oftentimes be articulated as being negative or aggression or aggressive versus when we would ask young, young domain um, experts to look at the same thing and they would have a very different understanding of what was happening in those pictures. Um, we want to make sure that we focus on NFP systems struggle to make meaning of context from diverse communities and the importance of a process for privileging and censoring context that could be helpful when paired with a critical perspective on how data is analyzed. And then again, the important thing is, is accuracy in this particular context something that we should be aiming for as a metric for success. If you're interested in the paper, um, this is where you can find it. All right, thank you. <laughs> Questions? Uh, <laughs> have you done any member checking? Have you found, I mean, you have domain experts, but have you like gone back, have you taken a set of, two things, have you taken a set of labeled data and gone back to the kids in Chicago generating that data and having them label it. Um, and then something that Garen Hilaire, who's a postdoc in my lab, has done um, is also just getting people to do their own. Um, have you gotten Chicago users, you know, used in some other context, to like use the same tools on their own Twitter stream? You know, get people to be like, this is when I was angry, and this is when I was sad, and this is when I was. Yeah, so we have, we've worked with the Institute for Nonviolence and we've worked with their young people and their violence outreach workers to do just that. And that's been a fascinating process. What's been interesting is that, you know, when, they, when we ask them to annotate the data, they do it so quickly and so fast because it is inherent to their, to their lived experience. Um, and we've learned a lot, as I mentioned before, about these backstories that, that are just ingrained in how they're processing what they're seeing. Um, but oftentimes, but not oftentimes, but sometimes, because it was so inherent, they wouldn't take their time, and they it would it wouldn't always be helpful too, and so that's a part of the challenge as well. Um, but we haven't um, the second part of your statement. We haven't gone. We haven't asked people to look at their own social media posts and to annotate their own data, which I think would be another interesting process. We have. Um, run workshops in New York City and in London. And what's been really interesting about that process is around this language issue is that we we seemingly thought that you know you had to have a very clear contextual experience to be able to make meaning of the post. But when we took this to Brixton and London, those young people could understand about 75% of the words and meaning that was coming out of the post because of the connection to music that many young people in London are listening to Chicago based your music and they could understand even the, the streets that I mentioned they had heard of before um, that we weren't we weren't prepared to we didn't expect that in the in our, our workshop. Second thought I had about the ethics was uh, crisis tech hotline. Yep. Like okay, so here are people who are in you know super vulnerable moments in their lives. And one of the things we're doing is like running a bunch of machine algorithm classifiers over their text, you know, and like, you know, in some case, making these sort of high stakes, like we're gonna classify you as like very dangerous or not very dangerous. It was just an article that came out that, yeah. you know, when people process those things, actually, we have research that has strange and similar kinds of things, but like the most dangerous words are, are specific words around mechanism. Um, if someone who's suicidal is using the word like Tylenol dosage, things like that, that's a 
that's actually a, a way higher, they think it's a way higher indicator of risk than sadness, anger, other kinds of things like that. So party thinks, well, like, here's some super vulnerable people, and these are some, you know, some tools that we can use to connect them to human beings in urgent ways, you know, but it's also a long way to more than misclassify people, um, you know, generating all this kind of data about people in really vulnerable parts of their lives can be used by the state and by other folks in all kinds of dangerous and terrible, you know, like all the stuff that's happening yeah. with uh, um, kids and immigrant uh, therapy, um, having their, you know, having ICE use their therapy notes against them and things yeah. like that. Um, I just wonder, like, what, uh, what, you know, other, other, maybe a way to turn that into a question is, what are, who are, who are other people Doing AI and social work, or, or AI and health, and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I part of the part of the reason why I'm here. So I'm a visiting researcher at Microsoft this uh, this semester, and why I'm putting myself in these tech spaces is to find those people. We are so behind in social work that they're, they're either, I don't have a counterpart in social work to have this conversation with. Um, so I so I think the, the points that you're raising are the things that I'm thinking a lot about and trying to build a community of folks who are thinking about these issues. But one of the things that I think, by focusing on context, we got to a point where we were no longer interested or concerned about aggression. Um, I think that what kind of came out is that so many young people were, were just living their lives online, and that trauma and expressions of loss and pain were more prominent than expressions of aggression. Only about 4% of the tweets that we have found over these six years would, would have been categorized in our, in our data set as being uh, aggressive. And so um, our, we have an NSF uh, grant under review now to, to understand what happens after loss is expressed on various social media accounts in partnering with local agencies to be able to get folks real-time support as they're processing grief and trauma in real time, which has been the biggest finding for us is that young people are just not in spaces and places where they're getting the kind of grief support that they need and are looking for, actively looking for in social media land. So, yeah. Those are the labels. We focus on two, grief and aggression, and then everything else is categorized as other. I'm sorry? Right. So how do we label a, a, a Twitter post as aggress aggression or grief? Is that what you're asking? The, the whole post, yes. The whole post is considered aggressive or loss. I'm sorry? No. We take the so this is so the whole point is that by separating it out like that, um, it wouldn't really tell us much, um, and so we needed 
and even just having a phrase is not enough. And so when annotator would get a post, they would at least get an entire phrase, an entire social media post. But then we would ask them to go back and to look at posts that came before and after that post to inform how they would label one post. And so because a lot of these comments would be connected to prior events and prior context that in order for them to make one decision, we needed them to actually get more information to at least get to one decision point. Yeah. Say it again? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's not the goal at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely the goal. Um, and so what I learned from prior qualitative studies is that there are outreach organizations all across the country, particularly in our urban centers, that are hiring community members to uh, um, stabilize conflict before it turns into a bloodshed. And they could not keep up with the arguments that were unfolding online. So normally, someone may, you know, after school, we have a problem, we argue, and then we might fight or not fight. And I could, someone could come and try to calm us down. The issue was 1,000 arguments had already happened. And by the time I see you, I, I may want to fight you, but I may just be ready to shoot you because you've said so much. You've said it in front of so many people. You've said it so many times. It's been shared so many times. That now I'm not just a little mad, I'm big mad. And so the outreach workers that we worked with were so concerned about not being able to tap into these conversations. And kind of what we're moving towards is that we don't want to necessarily tell you that Elizabeth is saying X, Y, and Z. But what we might want to say is Elizabeth and 40 other young people that are in this community are having, the, having four different categories of, co of conversation around loss, around aggression, so that at least that you can have an additional data point when trying to target particular communities with outreach services and supports. And so oftentimes, these organizations want to provide grief counseling. They want to provide job placement and training. They want to just have a bit more information that allows them to be better connect with young people. But they're not connecting with young people with, with where young people are. And so we're trying to mitigate that gap. Um, so the NSF grant that we have under review is an effort to do that. So to partner with this organization and develop, um, you know, we have these AI systems that can auto they can automatically find these things with some level of accuracy. But we actually want to spend time with them to figure out what is the thing that actually helps you do your job better, and we don't know what that is yet. service for and with particular communities or a tool of like 
like state violence and surveillance. I was wondering how much you think it, it is like an either or, how much it's like a both and, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, so, The the challenge for me is that I can't control how these things will be used, right? And so my hope is that we diversify who gets to be a part of this decision-making process. We have the right stakeholders at the table that are catching the blind spots before they are a bigger issue. Uh, we are having complicated and hard conversations around the inputs and who gets to make decisions on how data is categorized. Um, but I hope is that if we have a process that is critical enough that if you even want to try to do it, that you are forced to think about these critical processes. But right now, the landscape is not that. I can't, I don't know. I couldn't give this process to Facebook and think that they would actually implement it well, because that's not the goal. That's not what they're driven by. It's what probably most of us in this room care about. But no. And so that's one brain, one side of my brain. But then, you know, I spend a lot of time in communities where parents just want their kids to be safe. And to have a mom say, you know, I've lost one son. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to lose the other two. I know they're on social media all the time, and I can't stop them. Please help me. Well, do I say, well, you know, well, we have this tool that might be able to do it, but I don't know. Like, it, like having that conversation is equally as complicated. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, I'm hoping. I'm, I hope that I'm showing you how the complications of this decision-making process, because I don't want another child to die. And I also don't want to send another kid to prison. And I think both can happen. Yeah. I just on a similar note um, about the people who are hired as domain experts, yeah. like the youth from that community. Yeah. Um, is there a risk of them potentially being outed as informants? And is I mean, obviously, the, the fact that they are participating in this and you ask them what they're comfortable with and they're already at a violence prevention program means that they their intentions are to make the better. Sure. But, um, yeah, do you see that risk? And did they bring up that risk to you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. We haven't had that issue. I think the young people, a young person that is going to go to a youth violence program and participate in programming is probably one step removed slightly, right? That they are not as active and involved in the gang as maybe they once were. They are normally the young people that we would be connected with were actively trying to um, to either support their families or to better their life. And so they weren't as connected as they used to be. Um, and they actually were more interested in keeping their community safe and being a research assistant at Columbia was more important to them than anything else. And so that would override those concerns. The thing that did come up was just life, right? And so um, several of the young people that we work with, they would have to stop the project for a time because they needed to work more hours or get more work because their parent was sent off to jail or, or to prison. And that happened a few times. And those, so that was more of something that we were not prepared to handle. We had to figure out how to support that um, than anything else. But I think 
Um, these are not the young people that are actively in a gang, and that would be a very different conversation, I believe. Yeah. Have you had to engage at all with how some of these people are yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's been interesting to kind of see how people curate identities across multiple platforms. Um, and again, I have to, my, my data is retroactive, right? So this is all like 2014 to 2017. And so we weren't, people, there would, there would be like normally across the platforms, some of the same images would be used, some of the same language would be used, but it, it, it would depend on how the individual chose how to use that platform. And so Instagram might be more used to engage in romantic relationships versus Twitter would be used to just kind of talk randomly throughout the day. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 Like more, there's like a like identity shaping. Different. I don't know if it's facets of identity, but like this camp is this, this camp is this. Is this? Is it Twitter? Or maybe these are you're currently focusing on like public announcement. Right. Right. Um, disclosure. Yeah. Um, when we were interview. Yeah, that's a good point. When we were interviewing young people, the thing that was most important to them is that to be seen, to be known, was more important than to have private accounts or to hide. Because being known means that, A, you're alive, and that you can then indicate to people where you're going, who you're hanging out with. It was, a, it was also a way in which they could navigate safety for themselves. Hiding. Um, it happened, but it wasn't, this is was again 2014, 2015, was not the thing that was most important to them. Because they actually, as, a, as you may have heard, you know, young people that were gang involved would friend rival gang members um, so that you know who your, who your enemies are. It's not, it's not good to hide. You want, actually want to be able to say something back if they say something to you. And so during that particular time frame, that was most important. Yeah, when you, when you talk about the ethical concern, one of the questions that immediately raised for me is sort of what's the right use case? In yeah. other words, mm -hmm. and you're doing it retroactively, but how would you envisage a successful intervention? And, and do you have any evidence that there can be successful interventions based on um, Yeah, honestly, we have been so focused on trying to get this context piece right that we don't, we, we, we haven't try to roll this out in a real-time situation. This NSF grant that we have under review would be the first time that we would try that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I mean we, we, we've just gotten to the point where we're now seeing Jakaira as a whole person. Yeah. And it took six years for us to, to problematize and to critique our processes well enough to get to a place where I feel a little bit better about doing this in real time. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I don't, yeah, I don't know yet. And this next venture would, would um, be telling for us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.